should work. Perfect. We got it. All right, so we're honored to have uh, Dr. Bargava here. He's one of the pediatric emergency medicine doctors over at Long Beach, where he rotates in the pediatric ED. So he gave us a talk here about uh, pediatric abdominal stuff. Right, he's probably looking at the slide cover going, shooting out of both ends. Yeah, that's, that's what the talk's on. Uh, <laughs> So I kind of gave a talk on uh, neonatal emergencies back in January. We kind of ran out of a little bit of a time. So I said, okay, let me, you know, this is abdominal month. So let me kind of focus in on some abdominal-focused neonatal emergencies. So uh, a thrust of my stuff is going to be about uh, vomiting and, in particular, upper GI uh, bleeds. And then on the lower end, a little bit about diarrhea, but a lot about, like, the poopy red diaper. So what do you do with that bloody diaper and, and the neonate? So I'm going to kind of zone in on the neonatal period. And uh, so some of the things we'll be kind of doing and talking about, like, you know, the differential. What, you know, what pops into your mind when you see that chart and you see that age and your sphincter tone goes up a little bit, like, hmm. Uh, you know, what's an appropriate workup? Uh, when to worry, when to reassure. A lot of pediatrics, as you're finding out and when you're seeing kids, is uh, reassurance. It's okay, mom. This is all right. This is okay. And then, and then on many occasions, you have to make sure in your mind that this is not this, this is not this, life-threatening situations, this does not need to be evaluated inpatient, and what can be done as an outpatient. So that's kind of one of the critical things with peds and emergency medicine in general. Uh, and that kind of, you know, tags into the next thing. And then this last one, uh, I kind of threw this up here. There was an, uh, a resident who uh, said this to me once, and he was like, oh, I was working with an attending, and this was a general attending, and they said, oh, find a reason to admit that in neonate. I go, what? You know, what is this? You know, and then I was working in shift the other day, and I go, actually, that kind of makes sense, because what you're doing is you're, we're try what you're trying to say is, okay, have I thoroughly evaluated this kid in all capacities? Sure, this kid's coming in for belly button issues, but is there hyperbilly? I'm looking at this kid for um, something else, but has there been any fevers recently that might be of issue for this kid? So I said, hey, you know, that, that, that comment that I initially had blew off and said, oh, that's, you know, that's a generalist speaking because I'm a peds emergency medicine. I go, actually, that's not a bad uh, statement to make, you know. Are you thoroughly evaluating this neonate and uh, the potential complications it may be with that period? Because it kind of are considered, considered immunocompromised, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit uh, here in a bit. So to kind of start out on uh, shooting out on the top end, uh, vomiting in the neonate, and what I've you know, kind of graphically just uh, kind of shown is you know, the, some of the key features of it. So reflux, you know, gastroesophageal reflux, one of the major causes for vomiting. Simple gastroenteritis, you know, two-year-old sibling has some illness, this child has some. Any other concerns? You know, we'll get into that a little bit. Other infectious etiologies, meningitis, UTI. And then kind of down in here, a little bit less frequent, uh, but still a, a major concern in the, in the differential, obstruction, neurologic issues, increased ICPs, and metabolic. You know, this is a, this is a newborn baby. Are, are all the pathways cranking the way they should be? Uh, and then kind of zoning in a little bit more on the specifics of uh, vomiting, the upper GI. So I kind of want to, I'm going to be focusing a bit more on uh, this, um, this particular kind of group of uh, diseases. So swallowed maternal blood, you know, one of the most common reasons why uh, neonates have upper GI bleeds. Mother has either, and this is more so in the newborn period, either it's from delivery, uh, you know, newborn babies will be discharged uh, shortly thereafter, and they may have a little bit of residual most of the time that's picked up in the nursery. But then on occasion, a uh, mother starts to have, uh, with natural breastfeeding, some bleeding from her cracked nipples, which can kind of manifest itself. Uh, 
A peptic ulcer, not so common, but you can have some ulcerative uh, lesions in newborns. Esophagitis is from the reflux is one of the most common reasons. Intestinal duplication, so this is kind of a congenital anomaly where you kind of have two lumens side by side. Usually one's a tretic, usually the other one is, um, is a patent, uh, patent lumen, and there can be some bleeding associated with that. AVMs, other types of mal uh, vascular malformations. And hematemesis is uh, described with pyloric stenosis. So in, in the workup here, uh, I hit next. Ah, uh, there we go. In the workup, it's easy. You know, in the ED, it's always much easier. You know, those really sick, shocky, toxic-appearing patients, those are easy. You know, you, you, get, you, get, uh, you get an initial workup, you get a surgeon on board, and they're out the door, and they're, and they're, they're going to either to the OR or to the PICU and, or, you know, adult cases, ICU, wherever they're going. What's a little bit trickier is you have a relatively well-appearing neonate, and you have some type of chief complaint. And when can you send that kid home? So, like, you know, the question that will kind of come up to you on your, when you're dealing with these kids is, you know, what, what do I want to make sure to ask? And this kind of goes back, segues back into that question of try to find a reason to admit a neonate. So just uh, first year, throw your hands up, please. Throw me some things, you, um, when you're seeing a newborn, what are some of the things you want to ask uh, a, a newborn baby about, you know, just general quick bullet points about them? Good. Uh, urine output. Good. Um, like alertness and sleep habits. Good. Um, can't really think of that much else. That they do. No, that's that's uh, that that's quite that's really good. Uh, a few other things to kind of think about are, are a weight gain. So like you know this uh, how is this? That's kind of a sign of hydration status. Uh, urine output in the neonatal period is not as accurate an indicator uh, as you may be able to use later on. So you have a little one-year-old, two-year-old that comes in, you can ask how many wet diapers, et cetera. Uh, weight gain is a great way to kind of uh, get a sense of that in the neonatal period. Uh, and, you know, obviously we're doing abdominal emergencies, so I have to kind of ask character, the emesis, and the bowel movements. Urine output, any history of fevers. That's a whole bag of warm that we're not going to quite entertain in, in this particular uh, lecture, but if we have time at the end, maybe we can dibble-dabble on that. Interest in feeding and irritability, you kind of hit those. And uh, confirm intake, you know, uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, there's some cultures, some, uh, occasionally some parents that don't do uh, formula and or exclusively formula or breast milk uh, uh, in, the, in the early infancy period. And then the other th uh, kind of uh, catchphrase is what's called the WIC syndrome, where either knowingly or unknowingly, they don't mix formula as well. So it's, you know, typically one scoop, two ounces, and to kind of make that bottle go a little bit further or that formula go a little bit further, they dilute it more than they should. So, you know, hyponatremia and other metabolic derangements can occur with that. So that's, that. and, you know, if anything else, you know, grandmother said, oh, give this baby some tea, and tea with tea comes honey, and then you're like, and then you're like oh, my goodness, what, you know, what other home remedies are going on? So it's good to kind of find out what exactly is going into a baby's uh, mouth. Uh, we touched on this a bit, and uh, why well, I kind of like this phrase, so we kind of we'll go into this a bit more. Second years, give me a what, what's normal? You know, do you have kids, nieces, nephews? Okay, uh, what's nieces? Perfect. So then, that that's what I'll hang on. Uh, what's normal spit up? So when you're hanging out with your niece, what's does she spit up? Yeah, when she's littler, um, it's usually the milk, maybe a little yellow, but it's usually not going to be. 
a lot. It's small amounts. They kind of it's while you're burping them or shortly after feeding, and it's smaller amounts. Good. And then when does it kind of like seem odd, or what's what's I mean, be like what's some reason you tell your sister or brother to be like projectile? Yeah. So what's what's projectile? Carry kind of goes across the room. Kind of sure. Thing. Like you know you almost want to dodge out of the way of it. You know. <laughs> what's some other stuff that's kind of concerning? Good. So bilious or blood. Good. Yeah, that, that kind of sums it up. Uh, and I guess volume to an extent. That's that's kind of hard to quantitate. And, and you start asking families, and you know, once you have a kid or been up in the middle of the night, you have no idea. But you're you're starting to go like, how much is on the burp cloth or uh, uh, various other things. Um, third year. Why, Kenny? Let me pick on you since you're right there. Why 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 do kids get reflux? Um, I think sometimes they have like slow emptying, they get overfed, and they kind of burp it back up. Nice. Or um, so you know, it can be anatomic. You know, they have something wrong anatomically. Probably no, simple reflux. Simple, yeah. No, you, you hit the two big bullet points. Uh, it's usually overfeeding. You know, sometimes a, a good way to know how much is the right amount is you take the kid's age by uh, months and add an ounce. So two-month-old should get about three ounces every feed. Four-month-old, about five ounces every feed. And so that's a kind of a generic way of uh, looking at how much of these should take in. They also have de delayed gastric emptying and then uh, a little bit weakened lower esophageal sphincter tone. Uh, so that kind of, those all attribute, almost all kids have reflux when they're born, and about pretty much all of them get, uh, it subsides by one year of age. You kind of see a nice little graphic of them going, going away with age. Uh, how do you diagnose it? Who, who has a baby other than Megan? <laughs> Puckett, how do you diagnose reflux? Um, it's, you could do like a, a pH test, basically you put down a, a probe and you can measure you know, how much reflux they're having. Yeah. So he's talking about an esophageal pH probe where you put this into a baby and um, I don't know the exact placement of it, but you know, towards the distal end of the esophagus, and then it starts measuring over a 12, 24-hour period. I don't know exact uh, entity of time. They look to see a city. They're measuring how much is going up there and uh, how often is it in an acidic zone. What else? Um, I mean, they can do. A, um, you can. I think that's the best way to diagnose it. But then you can do like there's impedance studies. You can also do like a, um, a upper EGD. You can kind of look and see if they have like a really loose LES and just you know see if there's things reflexing when you're doing the study. But yeah, he's hitting. A, he's in a lot of the major. Some of the big ones are uh, the pH probe, the upper GI. So contrast goes into the mouth. And it looks for anatomic, uh, it looks for, uh, to some degree, because this is kind of a fluoroscopic study, and they're looking to see if there's any type of uh, reflux happening, which is kind of, kind of tricky because of the fact that you know that you know, all newborns have it, so you know there's going to be some degree, so they may comment on how much is it going up into the proximal esophagus, uh, or where is it going to. And then they also, they want to make sure to go through uh, two to three segments of the duodenum to say, hey, is this duodenum tacked down correctly? Do we see any gross malformations on the upper GI? So they'll let the contrast go through some of the small bowel. And then clinical, what's San Sandifer syndrome? What's going on here? What's this? Yeah, what is that? What's, what's going on there with that? Um, I think it just causes irritation, and I think they like they arch their back and turn their head. 
Yeah, like a, perfect. It's it's you know some people think think there's abnormal movements or it's almost a seizure, but it's usually related to feeds. They start to arch their back and they, and they sometimes cry and they sometimes seem irritated soon after feeds because it's just like you know we've had a heavy meal, heavy steak dinner, heavy pasta, and you just get that uh, you know that uh, burp, the vomit burp. So you can imagine a little, <laughs> right? I think that, you know, so sour brash taste. There, there's a medical term for you, but the layman term is verp. And they get that, and they get this little movement. So oftentimes, uh, clinicians out in, the, out in the field, they won't do the extensive workup of the pH probe, upper GIs, other modalities. And since they know that young ones typically get it, they'll go off of clinical and say, how much are you feeding your baby? What happens after that? What's it look like? What's the color of it? And the baby doing other kinds of symptoms. Oh, okay, you probably have reflux. And then they do do what they do for reflux. We're going to kind of focus in on some of the other nastier things so you know we can hold reflux off for another talk but you know that's kind of what they do as far as the workup of it. Let's swing over to uh, pyloric stenosis as uh, one of the things that causes uh, vomiting in the newborn period as well as is associated with some uh, hematemesis. So it's one of the most common surgeries in the first few months of life. Uh, you know the classic firstborn male there's an association, not clear uh, causation with erythromycin and other macrolides. Uh, peak period is in that first couple months of life. Uh, and, you know, you, it's described up to five months of age. So this kind of tells you that this is, uh, this is not something you're necessarily born with. You're not born with a hypertrophic uh, uh, muscle, pyloric muscle. Something that's kind of somewhat acquired and it slowly starts to crank off. And that's kind of why you can peak, uh, show up at a little bit later life. Um, descriptions of finding that classic olive, you know, just subxiphoid, maybe a little bit off to the right. You know, you want to try to get them in a relaxed position, kind of legs curled up. Uh, sometimes I find that, you know, I, I oftentimes feel the xiphoid process, and I think that's the olive. Um, uh, and I've, you know, been proven wrong by ultrasound later on. But uh, if you, I try to uh, feel them either with a pacifier in the mouth or in the prone position. And I find that, you know, in the pro position, I can get my finger underneath a little bit easier. Sometimes you can, I, we've, I've had one family that says, yeah, I see these waves uh, across the bow. And you're like, what? And you may see this in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, on the patient in your department where there's peristalsis waves distally as they're trying to get food to go across. Uh, they may see that. Imaging prior to ultrasound, upper GI was the, the diagnostic choice, and what that looks for is kind of like a bird's beak appearance through the pylorus. But now ultrasound is so great at uh, finding it that that's pretty much uh, used. And what's the what's the classic um, metabolic arrangement? Uh, Shahina. Alkalosis, perfect. So you can kind of think about that they're vomiting out a lot of acids, uh, what makes them a little bit alkalotic, and then, uh, then there is uh, the hypokalemic associated with that as well. Medical emergency? Yay, nay. Yeah, so if it gets bad enough, um, then there are a few case reports of kids becoming apneic because of the degree of alkalosis. It's on the rare end, but typically surgeons would like for there to be kind of uh, uh, more normal electrolytes for, and for other, electro, uh, other uh, potential complications that occur with metabolic or electrolyte abnormalities. And we kind of talked about that ultrasound is kind of the uh, diagnostic imaging of choice. They're looking for elongation of the pylorus as well as thickness of the muscle. So the muscle, three to four millimeters, 
and about 14 millimeters of uh, lengthening of the pylorus is what they're looking for when they're looking on ultrasound. I've been told, uh, I don't see Fox here, that it's a, typically a, a pretty easy exam to do. I haven't done one myself. Most common reason, we kind of alluded to this, uh, the, you know, the bleeding maternal nipple. So, you know, this would be an indication for, you know, grabbing a nurse, going in there, uh, if mom has maybe some concern uh, that, this, uh, that this could be the cause of it. Um, you know, let's say you got a good-looking kid spitting up a little bit of vomiting, and we have some vomit there on a, on, uh, on a specimen of a kid just vomiting, and you have it in a, in a cup of sorts. How can, you, how can you distinguish the two? Baby blood versus mom blood. You guys remember this? Yeah, I think I heard it back here, the app test. What, do you remember what that is? Yeah, so what they're doing is that they're looking at um, maternal hemoglobin, which has adult hemoglobin, versus uh, fetal red blood cells, which has uh, predominantly fetal hemoglobin, and distinguishing it. Caveat here, and I, I called the lab. I was just, just making sure, they, and they verified. Nope, you got to have bright red blood. You cannot have melanin or coffee ground. You can't, you know, typically you can't be a lower GI bleed, uh, that you know, uh, or uh, cannot be dark lower GI bleed to distinguish this. And you figured if it's swallowed maternal blood by the time it comes down, it's going to be dark, um, because what happens is that maternal hemoglobin turns yellow when it's added to uh, when sodium hydroxide is added to it. So if you've got some bright red blood, you can do this. How often do I do it? Yeah, not so often. So it's one of those things that's nice uh, if you wanted to distinguish it. It's, it's there. Um, some other, uh, so we kind of alluded to this, about other feeding issues that you want to make sure about. So G obstructions. We've kind of talked about pyloric stenosis. We'll touch on a little bit more. CNS uh, diseases. Renal, not so common. Infections can be part of the uh, issue in metabolic. And a little bit broader look at this, uh, malrotation, Hirschsprung, duplication, which we talked about, CNS, hydrocephalus, hemorrhagic uh, uh, diseases uh, in, the, in the brain, uh, renal, infections of various etiologies and inborn errors of metabolism. So when you've got this, uh, and you know, we've kind of talked you know, a little bit about what's normal spit up, what's normal intake, you, know, you want to make sure that your baby's feeding well, has interest in feeds. Uh, and you can kind of look to see, okay, I've got a kid, I don't think it's one of these things. Uh, when you've got a vomiting child, you know, how do you proceed from there? Like what, what can, what's like, you know, maybe like a, a way to work up a child who's got the vomiting? And a typical way, you know, a, a newborn, infant, uh, neonatal period, you know, you want to kind of evaluate, you know, either clinically or radiographically that there's not pyloric stenosis. All right. Do I have any other, you know, since uh, anatomic GI would be kind of a concern for me, are any of those there that uh, could be of, uh, of interest? And, you know, I want to think of the other differentials, CNS, renal, infectious, anything else going on. All right, likely GERD. So, and then, you know, I throw the trial of time in there. In pediatrics, this oftentimes plays in your favor. You've got the crying, irritable, fussy, you know, rule out, you know, other diseases, but then colic is what, you know, your gut says this kid's got colic, but the parents come in tired, and you're like, do I make sure this is not NET? Do I make sure this is not something else? Trial of time comes into your favor. So you get an experienced nurse at that bedside, you know, helping the family out with some of those things that help out, and then you watch the child, and if things, if that kid truly is fussing, crying, irritable, all right, you proceed with your workup of looking at various etiologies. 
if the trauma time, let's try a feeding here. You know, you're saying that, you know, the kid looks great to me. You're saying this kid's vomiting this. You have no specimens I can see necessarily. Let's try a feeding. Let's see what happens. So, you know, and obviously this is kind of going back to that, you know, sick, not sick kid, where you have a sick kid that looks good, and you're like, I think things are good. I don't think any of the things that Bhargava's talking about are going on. Why not, you know, do a trial of feeding? So this is, yeah, it eats up a little bit of ED time, but I think in the neonatal period or young infant, it's worth uh, looking into to kind of spend a little time with that child. Any questions on the shooting out of the top end? All right, let's swing over to the bottom end. So bottom end, bloody, nasty stool. You know, this, uh, this would be normal-ish if there wasn't uh, blood in there. You know, it's got yellow. So normal baby stools, for those who don't have the pleasure of getting to see it uh, on a regular basis, uh, such as Megan, myself, and Puckett. But, uh, you know, yellow, greenish, seedy stuff. And then now we'll throw in some blood in there. Where so seedy from, by the way? No idea. It's so gross. It is gross. <laughs> <laughs> I will do an extensive lit search on that and get back to you. <laughs> so bloody stools. So a, a partial differential on this. Um, NEC, necrotizing enterocolitis. What? That's a NICU preterm thing. Uh, we'll talk about that. Cow milk protein allergy. So this is kind of like, I don't know how many of you have seen families come in. This is my fourth formula that I'm on. And this is a... Now the doctor this, oh, the other sibling had this protein allergy, so we're on isomel or this or this. So we'll kind of get a little bit into that. You can get some swallowed maternal uh, blood that kind of comes out as lower GI bleed. Anal fissures, open the diapers, open the diapers, open the diapers. It's good for various radius etiologies, just to make sure everything is kosher in the GU portion. Uh, and also, if you have, hey, if you've got an anal fissure, a nice two, three millimeter bright red anal fissure, done. Uh, infectious diarrhea, not so common in the neonatal period, but can present. There's case reports of shigalosis and salmonella and camphi. And if you look in, uh, who knows Red Book? Who knows what Red Book is? Red Book, good. So when you guys, next time you go to your online manual or in the library, most of you are online anyway, so go to online and go to the library and look up Red Book. It's a pediatric infectious disease book, and so it curtails on epidemiology, diagnosis, and uh, treatment. So if you look there, uh, for the most part, it says, you know, salmonella, ah, unless you're immunocompromised, you know. So uh, as you look at different pathogens, ah, unless you're immunocompromised. We're talking about immunocompromised kids. The neonatal period is immunocompromised. Plenty of case reports of salmonella going into bacterial infections. Ugh, don't want that happening. So that's, uh, that's a good uh, reference to look up uh, the Red Book. Um, and obstructive processes that could be causing uh, bloody diarrhea as well. A little bit more uh, etiologies, common ones. So that's always a kind of a fun thing to do. Swallowed maternal blood, the protein allergies, infection, anal fissures. And you see towards the bottom uh, of that for like the healthy, you know, the newborn uh, lower GI bleed. Some uncommon ones, uh, polyps. Again, vascular lesions, AVMs, et cetera, Hirschsprung's disease, uh, and intestinal duplications. So starting out, you think it's a lower GI bleed, and how do you think so? You've got a poopy diaper with some blood in it. But are you sure that's uh, a GI bleed? Because remember, you've got urethra, vagina, uh, uh, anus, various orifices from which that blood could be coming. So you want to make sure that what you're looking at is truly a GI bleed when you're kind of looking at things. Uh, examine that, that kind of, that was kind of, uh, we talked about that a little bit before. Kill the slide here. 
So some false positives. Uh, vaginal bleeding. This right here happens to be a little bit of vaginal bleeding uh, in a neonatal period. Urate crystals. Urate uh, acid levels, I've tried to look for a great explanation as to why they're elevated. They happen to be elevated in the newborn period. The newborn sheds them and then the levels go down. And urate crystals will often manifest not so much bright red blood or melanin, but kind of an orangey color. So if you kind of see orangey color uh, crystals, those will subside within a week's time. Um, and you know the other false positives of Kool-Aid and other things, that doesn't happen in new, this period of age because they're not eating anything but formula and breast milk, or they shouldn't be. <laughs> so, neonatal vaginal bleeding? What's that about? Uh, man, okay. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> Good. So, withdrawal to maternal estrogen uh, usually occurs in the second or third uh, week of life, lasts a few days. Those maternal hormones, okay, so you got that one. What else do they cause? Yeah, good. What else? Mood swings. Mood swings of the newborn or mood swings of the mother? Newborn. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if that's been clear. Any, there's a causation or a correlation on that one. But yeah, so actually they can get gynecomastia in both. Uh, and usually gone by the second week of life, and they could be what they call the witch's milk, so they can be a little nipple discharge. So, so long as there's no bleeding, no signs of infection, so uh, similar to a woman, mastitis, erythema, tenderness, and warmth, as long as it's just uh, normal, healthy flesh skin that's not uh, looking cellulitic or uh, signs of empyema, uh, no, sorry, not empyema, but uh, erysipelas, then you're all right. Good, so... Uh, We've kind of t I kind of gave you the differential of some of uh, uh, so that's some of the more common false positives in the, the blood and the, the diaper or the redness in the diaper. I want to focus in on a few of these etiologies here, Malro, NEC, and infectious diarrhea. So malrotation, abnormal fixation of the mesentery of the bowel. So this in and of itself is Malro. Also, you know, embryologically, it's you know complete, complete, incomplete. There's various uh, ab abnormalities that can occur, but one of the you know the take-home points for us is that there's abnormal rotation around the superior mesenteric artery, and uh, the C-sweep of the duodenum is not in the correct position, which is usually over in the right upper quadrant, re yeah, right upper quadrant region. Volvulus, so you can have Malro with or without volvulus, and Malro usually presents uh, in a, in a um, um, in a sick-appearing, vomiting, tender, obstructive-type pattern with volvulus. So that's twisting of the bowel on itself, surgical emergency. Here's kind of a little diagr diagrammatic uh, depiction of this, kind of showing uh, the twisting of the bowel uh, entity, which can cause, oops, which can cause um, ischemia to the gut uh, and, uh, uh, and therefore gut death shortly thereafter. In the neonatal period, uh, and I think I've told you guys about this website for, for the interns, Hawaii Pediatric Emergency Medicine Radiology, great website for case-based presentations of uh, disease processes. It's peer-reviewed by other PZM docs, so it's a great site to go to and a great place to, for, like, you know, good lecture pictures. But the gasless abdomen is kind of an omniscient, you know, ugh, that doesn't look so good. This is a picture of a little bit older child who has uh, malrotation. And you can kind of see lack of uh, gas in the uh, lower GI rectal region and a lot of gas here, uh, kind of last gas kind of, sorry, uh, shifted off to the right side. So abnormal in appearance. Um, that 
malrotation is typically a surgical emergency that's that's one of those swooped off to the OR, you know. So they, with the bobulus, the children don't look uh, don't look well. They have uh, bilious emesis. You get a acute abdominal series. And that's pretty much the extent of your workup that needs to be done if you have a high clinical suspicion. Occasionally, if you have a child who has uh, malrotation without volvulus, so you have some vomiting, that might be where the upper GI comes in handy, and you might see some the abnormal C-sweep of the duodenum. So swing it over to enteroc uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, NEC. So this is usually a disease of the preterm infant. So we'll kind of throw some numbers kind of saying, hey, what's, you know, how many preterms, how many full terms? Some risk factors are for, now we're going to focus in on full term kids. These are the kids who are going to come to your ER on a Saturday morning, just discharged yesterday. I have blood in my stool. Do I have NEC? So these kids will typically have an anoxic event or some type of stress at birth. They can present with bloody stools, some irritability, some abdominal distensions. Plain films may show pneumatosis intestinalis. What's that? We'll get to that in a bit. Surgery might be indicated if there's perforation of bowel. That's a no-duh. Uh, sorry, that's supposed to be abdominal wall cellulitis, portal vein gas, or clinical deterioration. Yeah. Bloody, bloody stools. I've got a little uh, staging for it. Uh, typically, it, it's usually early on. Yeah. Yeah. So, oops, oh, sorry. Here is pneumatosis. This is kind of a in-your-face depiction of it. It can be more subtle than this in the early findings. So this is free air in the bowel uh, lumen. It can be in various locations, and you can kind of see uh, uh, see that depicted. They're kind of the worm worm in the bowel. Uh, the portal vein gas with per, uh, can also occur, and then free air is uh, free air is a later finding for perforation. So, you know, my wife's a neonatologist. This is what she does. This is her bread and butter. There's no reason for you to know this whatsoever. But the reason I put this on here is because, so you just to be familiar with staging. So one, two, and three. Uh, radiographically, you may have no signs of pneumatosis in the early onset. So this is kind of the tricky, hey, do I have, you know, I have got some, a little occult blood in the stool. I've got some gross blood in the stool. Kids acting a little funny, I don't know. Okay, we'll call it stage 1A or B, uh, NEC. And then 2 and beyond is when you start having the pneumatosis intestinalis and other more overt signs of uh, NEC. The one little caveat to this is that, you know, about a year ago I had a radiologist, I, for one reason or another, there's a KUB and a neonate, he's like, oh, retain stool versus pneumatosis intestinalis. Really? You're good, you're Wait, can someone else look at this? You know, because I need a little help. I mean, this is either constipation or admit to NICU with antibiotics and surgery on board. Nope, that's what we do. That's what I'm going to call it. Thank you. So, uh, so subtle, it can be subtle in the early periods. You have to put the whole clinical picture together. And you're seeing that there's systemic findings of, you know, temperature instability, apnea, bradycardia can be associated with it. And, you know, the thing for this is you want to kind of have that clinical suspicion for it. So you want this kid to be acting beautifully before you say, I doubt any C in this kid. So some, uh, some articles. So this was one, I forget which group. This was either, I believe this is out of Kansas. And they looked at, they did a retrospective chart review. And they looked at charts uh, of neonates from 98 to 02. So that's about, what, five years. And I believe they had about 26 kids. Uh, five-year period, and they had, four, sorry, 14 full-term kids that ended up having NEC. And in this particular one, they said, hey, you know what, we're, gonna, we're not going to keep it shady. We're going to keep it two, stage two and beyond. We're going to look at those kids. And um, 
Many of these kids uh, had some type of congenital heart disease kind of panned out, uh, a nuchal cord insult, uh, or some other type of syndromic feature. And about half of the kids didn't. So that kind of helps you a little bit that you know the kids who have some type of problematic or maybe some flow obstruction, maybe a little bit higher risk for this particular entity in a, as a full term. This group looked at about 30 some odd years and they had 251 preterm and 26 full term. So that kind of gives you an idea. This is a very preterm disease, but hey, 26 kids in about 30 years, about one a year in this particular institution. And so, you know, in this particular place, the uh, age of diagnosis for full term kids was about five years, of, five days of age. That's going to become across uh, your ED. Um, and they also had similar numbers in where they found about 10 out of the 26 kids had no risk factors. They were good, you know, great maternal, prenatal labs, no issue, came out fine, great APGARs, looked good, went home, had NEC. Ugh. Six of them had congenital heart disease, and they're not looking at normal, you know, small PDA at birth that closes on its own, or a little PFO. They said, we don't, we're not gonna count those. We're talking about VSDs, ASDs, so some, you know, some good, good lesions going on. And 10 out of 26 has some various other non-cardiac risk factors, so some nuchal cord, hypoglycemia, sepsis, IEGR. So, okay, these are some good, good things that might may consider a child to be sick and may have some abnormal flow to the gut. So the kind of the take-home point for this that I want you to have is that this is a disease process that can happen to full terms. And, uh, you know, in general, the two, two articles and, uh, and a few others that I looked at, I kind of put these two together here, about half-ish, a little less than half, the kids were okay. They didn't have any other major issues uh, that, were, that would make you concerned that, oh, this would be a kid with NEC. Onset, on average, you know, first couple weeks of life is when you're kind of looking at this. Uh, I'd kind of keep it on your, yeah, that, that would be a decent two to three weeks of life. And then we kind of talked about the predisposing factors that would kind of make you a little, little more concerned for it. So bloody stools. So, you know, kind of putting this together, you know, we've talked about, you know, some of the ones that, uh, you know, looking good, uh, looking good or looking good-ish kids. This is kind of where that time of trial, uh, someone, you know, reevaluating that kid's abdomen, potentially getting a hemoglobin to see how much bleeding truly is going on, potentially getting a cube abdominal series to look, do I see pneumatosis intestinalis? Uh, and it's, it's tricky because there are, uh, on review of cases, you know, when you look at either GI, on kids who do get admitted or who do end up getting consultations, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between two particular entities of either NEC versus moderate to severe protein allergy. Protein allergy we'll talk about here in a little, yeah, we got some time, good. Um, I'll talk about it here in a couple slides. And so, you know, this is a little bit tricky of a disease process to deal with. Infectious diarrhea, um, not an also common process that happens in neonates. However, like I talked to you about with the Red Book, it's one of those things that if they're, um, if they're a neonate, immunocompromised. So how do you, how do you, you know, kids in a diaper 24-7, unless you're given a bath or, um, or, you know, take them out of them for a little bit, how, you know, how would you kind of say, Randy, how would you say this kid's got diarrhea, a neonate? Yeah, so, no, so like, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, they don't have well, newborns don't have well-formed stool, you know, it's not coming out sausage, it's not coming out, uh, you know, it's, yeah, so it's, you know, that yellow pasty business, so, you know, when are you going to pull the trigger to potentially work up a kid?
if he looks um, hypovolemic, if he's in tachycardic, sunken fontanelle, um, dry mucous membranes, based on how he looks, uh, or if you can see the diaper. Yeah, so I, I give you a diaper. So great. So Randy's trying to talk about some of the hypo, uh, the things that when a kid looks like kind of dry and sick, and that might give you an indication of you know this kid's taking in less or taking in the normal amount, and there's just a lot coming out. Some things that I was kind of alluding to is you know typically you have some stool above the diaper region. If this diaper is either just leaking out the sides, uh, you know despite being put on well, leaking out the sides or totally soaked in, and there's there's nothing. You, you're like I don't see poop, but there's a bunch of green stuff in here. Uh, or, you know, potentially it, mucus, mucus, you know, so like you're like, okay, so there's some mucus mixed in here uh, that doesn't typically look as normal for uh, a change from the stool. Blood is a uh, bloody, you know, so now we're dysentery, bloody stool. So that might kind of pull a trigger also that, you know, this might be infectious or might be infectious diarrhea. Um, Tricky thing is, is that you know not all. Uh, for I don't know of, of uh, who all has had like a breastfeeding experiences, but stool in general it can vary. It can vary quite often, especially if you're a breastfeeding breastfeeding mother. They can have uh, the stool can vary from uh, stool to stool. But what I would say is like the things that I would look for to kind of pulling a trigger on whether to call it diarrhea and whether to uh, look further into it. And I tried doing a PubMed search looking specifically at neonatal. Uh, this was my search, neonatal bacterial diarrhea, you know, so not just infant, not just pediatrics. Is there great indicators as to when to kind of look for occult blood, look for leukocytes? Uh, when, do you get, uh, when do you get stool cultures? Didn't find anything looking specifically at neonates. What came up was, it's rare. Here's a case report of shigellosis, mostly viral. Uh, in, in infants, you know, so there's some infantile, uh, we'll look at this. Yeah, the leukocyte may help you out. But it may not. So it's kind of hard to hang a hat as to when you're going to start doing it. But I'd put some uh, put some stock into calling it diarrhea if it's seeping into the diaper. If you have some mucus involved in there, and uh, if there's some blood involved in there as well with that picture. Yes. Going back to what Randy was was focusing on, it seems to me like if the kid's dehydrated with diarrhea, then we're not going to be managing that kid ourselves. Correct. And so almost the dehydration, signs of dehydration would define what is diarrhea and too much stool loss. So yes, it could be how much is there and did it leak out and was it bloody and all that other stuff, but if the kid looks dry and he's a neonate, we're going to be admitting that kid anyway and right. a pediatrician. So almost by definition, the dehydrated kid with <coughs> abnormal stools, we're going to end up calling diarrhea and pursuing it with a pediatrician. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. Dancing around the, how do you define diarrhea, but if it's diarrhea enough to make it dehydrated or it's stool enough to make it dehydrated, then I think it's diarrhea. Yeah. No, that's a good way of putting it together. Uh, milk protein allergy. So this is, uh, this is one that I kind of alluded to with the NEC that can be fairly difficult to distinguish between the two processes. Anyone have an idea of how you kind of diagnose this or look into this or further investigate into this? Maybe or what it is? You could like change, uh, change the, what the formula or whatever they're getting or you can maybe do a skin test. So. Yeah, so skin testing has been described uh, in young ones, mostly infants, uh, to look to see if they have an allergic response, a wheel of a certain size, et cetera. And uh, the other thing that Puckett was alluding to was like, 
considering doing a trial of avoidance. So this is hard because you've got a two-week-old who, you know, our focus has been that good-looking kid where you don't have, you have low suspicion for anything bad going on, and you have blood in the stool. Um, so let me, let me dial, dial a little bit more into the diagnosis. So it's mostly done by trial. So this is what typically happens here is you, you've exposed a child to either an allergen or to a protein, which they don't agree with. Sometimes there's a family history that's associated with this, and sometimes uh, prior siblings have had issues with this as well. Skin, skin testing, you can do bio uh, biopsies of bowel to look to see if there's signs of allergens. That's usually done in more complex cases. And usually what ends up happening is this trial is switching over to a hydrolyzed formula. So take that complex formula that's in your run-of-the-mill Infamil Similac, and what they do is they break it down, and so they have other uh, formulas that can be tried out with. Gross bleeding stops in two to three days, and guaiac positive may remain for two to three weeks. But the issue for us here is saying that we have a child who's looking fairly well. When, do you, when, would, you, when would you say, you know, uh, this might be a protein allergy versus not. And what I would say is that on average, it's not, uh, it's not a good idea to try switching formulas. Typically, most children, neonatal period, would be, uh, I would incline you towards admitting those children for further workup, given the extensive history. Now, as your career is developing, if you have uh, a wealth of experience with neonates, and this is a fantastically beautiful neonate that comes to you, Beautiful exam, beautiful imaging on radiograph looking for pneumatosis, maybe a great H&H as indicated. Trying a hydrolyzed formula and sending up in a well-appearing family that's got follow-up, has connection, is not an absurd thing to do. Any questions on that? So we used to, in the old days, we used to switch everybody to soy formula at the drop of a hat. That's out of vogue now. 30 to 40 percent of kids who have, like, that's like a rough number who have uh, cow protein allergy, also have soy, fam, uh, soy formula allergies. But then on occasion you'll get, oh, little Susie, my two-year-old, switched to Isomil, did great. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a, I'm sorry? Isomil is a, sorry, is a soy formula. So that would be in consideration to try doing that. But you're advising generally against it, it, it in the hospital. Uh, I... I I, I think I, what I would do in that particular case is uh, ask if there's like if prior siblings have done well with it, and if they have, go for it. Uh, and if if you're if you're planning on sending home, so if you're planning on sending home, a trial of ISMO with prior siblings, or else I typically go to one of these guys. Okay. And you'd make contact with the pediatrician or the person on call for that group, right? In real time, and follow up the next day. Yep. Knowing the fact that you're going to still have some gross bleeding, I educate families on this so they don't show up to you 12, 24, 48 hours later, that gross bleeding will still, it shouldn't worsen, and that obviously the, ch uh, the child's clinical picture shouldn't get worsened at all, but, uh, but that there will still be some bleeding going on. Any other questions on this topic? All right. Yeah. yeah. Bottom line is someone who's not going to come out as PGM trained or whatever. Kid comes in and there's history of blood and stool or whatever, and you do say you know B and it's positive. Um, I feel like for me, I'm not sending that kid home at all unless they look totally fine otherwise. Mm -hmm. You do get some kind of history that this exists in the family, like some sort of cow milk allergy. And three, I can actually speak to their pediatrician to say, hey, you're going to see this kid tomorrow, right? I mean, because. 
Otherwise, you're sending home. Right, because I, I throw up this nasty differential of uh, NEC. It happens in full terms. Some of these kids look good. And then, you know, common things happen commonly, and occasionally you get the, uh, the NEC of the year into your, into your, uh, into bed 10. <laughs> so uh, you, you hate... Yeah, you can't admit everyone Right. And, and that's why I throw the caveat out there that um, it is not unheard of to admit the lower GI bleed in a neonatal period because of the vast differential that can occur with that kid. They should get worse quick. Quickly. Yeah. Yet, however, with yeah. time and experience, it would also not be unheard of if all the stars line up to have a trial of a different formula. Either isomel if family history um, and, and or a hydrolyzed formula. You, men you mentioned getting uh, hematocrit as a, sort of a screen for badness. What about electrolytes and a relatively normal bicarb or normal bicarb? A, uh, in the, my lit search for looking for, uh, I guess it'd be if, if the clinical picture uh, shows that, then uh, then that would obviously uh, dictate that. However, in a um, uh, in the workup of the the various etiologies I talked about, other than pyloric stenosis, uh, I don't see an indication. And anecdotally, I don't do that typically. Okay. There's a um, a history of bloody diarrhea or bloody stools, but you don't have any evidence in the emergency department of that, including a radical exam, that maybe <coughs> is, you get a little bit of stool that's white positive and the child looks otherwise well, mm -hmm. are you still, is it like the fever at home, the mom says, yes, it was 102, you still believe it and you still treat it the same way as bloody stool in the ED? Yeah, I would treat it the same because what else is going to cause blood other than urate crystals, sure. vaginal bleeding? Right. So I mean, those are those are kind of there, and you know, nowadays everyone takes pictures of everything. So you hope someone maybe has a picture of yeah. what you've got, and maybe it's a good enough quality that you can go off of. And that's also kind of why I go back to the trial of time. You know, you watch the kid. Uh, kids poop six, seven times a day. What's another couple hours in the ED? Go ahead, eat. We'll watch you. Give me the next poopy diaper. <laughs> it's not like the three-year-old that's having diarrhea ten times a day, and you tell them to give you a stool sample after three weeks of diarrhea, and they all of a sudden plug up. The neonate will continue to go on, and, and if, if, if there's a bleed, GI bleed going on, particularly of significance, it will continue to go on, more than likely. There's always exceptions. Excellent. So in summary, kind of the shooting out of the top end, if you've got a kid, just kind of summarizing this, who's got a disinterest in feeds or is persistently vomiting, this is not the child that you Zofran oral challenge in the neonatal period. This is a child that you're more than likely bring in to your uh, bring in because of the vast differential that could be going on. Bloody stools, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, can be managed as an outpatient as long as all of the stars are kind of lining up. And obviously, you know, we talked about a sick kid, not so sick kid. Sick kid's easy. That kid, that's admitted, done. The not so sick kid or the well appearing kid, that's where everything's got to line up for you. So we're supposed to do a few questions. Here's question number one. Actually, funny thing, uh, I didn't go over this. I thought I was going to go over this. <laughs> I usually, I usually pound this into your brains over and over again. So uh, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know who's in charge of this. This is uh, Austin. Yeah, it's for Simonian saying. <laughs> yeah. So, I, so the, like the reason why you didn't include things like that is because 
at it just because it, typically you don't see Typically, yeah, not so common. It does happen in the neonatal period, but it's, it's not like in the, yeah, I, cho I, cho I chose, oftentimes I, you know, can, a pediatric uh, abdominal can get crazy, so I just so I decided to focus on the neonate on this one. But Meckles can happen. It's not a funny thing of twos, two years of yeah, life, two inches. Yeah, so it, uh, it, it, and it does present uh, in the neonatal period, painless rectal bleeding. So what's our answer here? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so usually should you, you're allowed to, actually someone chime it out. Yeah, so 7 to 10, you can actually give them until 14 days. Uh, so 10% by 10 to 14 days. So 10 and 10, if you kind of keep 10 and 10 in your mind, that's a good number. And you can give them up until two weeks. So they lose 10% of their birth weight and they regain it by 10 days? By 10 to 14 days. 10 to 14. And I think that's, you know, one of those, one of those questions that you ask about uh, the well-looking kid that you want to make sure, do I have a reason to admit this kid? Are we going over these? Are you guys writing them down? Or is it a turn in? Last time we were turning them in, so that's what I was... We don't have the papers today, so... Oh, no problem. Not a problem. So uh, someone chime out on this one. Good. Good. Mood changes. <laughs> Megan took off. <laughs> and we just went over this one. Perfect. Two to three days. Thanks, guys. Anytime the kid comes in, you had any kind of preterm anything with it, stuff. very low threshold to admit, right? Much lower threshold to admit. Um, there have been fever studies. Uh, and I'm trying to remember what else, like uh, large-scale studies have looked at this, that uh, that kid is still considered baking until they're completely done. Typically, yeah, you know, the things where the preterm effect uh, is, gets into, oftentimes gets into trouble is infection.